Welcome to the Message Podcast from Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can find us on most major podcast outlets. Visit cotnaz.org for more info. Our worship services stream weekly on Sundays at 9 a.m. on YouTube and Facebook Live. You can also find our live stream at cotnaz.org. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road. We also have a campus in East Rockingham at 414 South East Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, our Spanish-speaking campus meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. at that same 1871 Boyers Road location. Check out our website, cotnas.org, for more info. Happy 4th of July, folks. I got a, a reminder last night. I mean, we were in zombie land by like the time this started happening at quarter till 10. That's, we're, we're early to betters. But the cannon sounded like it went off beside the house last night as the neighbors were celebrating. So it reminded me that, oh, hey, it is 4th of July weekend. So uh, happy 4th of July to you. Uh, as we dive into the message today, I thought, what better way to celebrate the 4th of July than watching the Winter Olympics? Y'all, y'all down for that? We're going to dive into the word today starting with the Winter Olympics. The Canadians in lane two and three together could push out Jacobellis and Frieden. It's a good start. Jacobellis and Mael Ricker in the lead at the moment. An incredible start from Tanya Frieden, though. It's Frieden and Jacobellis out in front. The two Canadians at the back. Mael Ricker, Dominique Molte bringing up the rear. It's Lindsay Jacobellis extending a lead at the early stage of this course. She's got the clear line. Tanya Frieden on the outside. Oh, she's landed on the tail of a board. Frieden is out. She's slowed down. Mael Ricker, Mael Ricker is going to struggle now to get the speed. Jacobellis looking very sure now to make it a one, two, three on American. Oh, Mayo Ricker going straight through the fence on the back of the A32. Ibrahimovic now for Lindsay Jacobellis, a seemingly uncatchable lead as she comes through. Through the curl into the Coliseum. Lindsay Jacobellis is cruising now. She knows she's out in front. Mayo Ricker through the fence. Just in the back there, Tanya Frieden. Where is Dominique Maltese? That is the big question. Bronze medal. It looks like we've got gold and silver sewn up. Mayel Ricker in the fence is not going to be able to recover in time. Very, very unfortunate for her. This is a lap of honor for Lindsay Jacobellis. The Americans. Ma- oh, drama! Jacobellis is down. Oh, look at her. This is incredible. Freedom! Freedom! Unbelievable. Lindsay Jacobellis has thrown a gold medal away in the last hundred meters. Oh, what has happened? Tanya Frieden cannot believe her luck. What on earth was Lindsay Jacobellis freaking? This is ridiculous. I have never seen anything like it. I'm not sure what's more impressive, the announcing or the snowboarding. Uh, I really want to have that announcer here to preach on Sunday. (laughs) But there's something about moments like that, isn't it? Because I heard you as as she hit the snow, I heard you groan. There's something about that failure at the last moment, that 
what are you doing? We just want to scream at the television because we're leaning into that story. We desire to see people finish and win. And we just, what are you doing? What are you doing? That was in 2006. And uh, that snowboarder, Lindsay Jacobellis, went on to... Uh, went, went from what uh, the announcer called a seemingly uncatchable lead to throwing away a gold medal at the last minute in sight of the finish line. And it would be 16 more years before she would get her hands on Olympic gold. There's something about stories like this. There's something about our human experience that when we see those stories, when we see someone so close to the finish line but yet not make it, we just cringe deep within us. We long to see people finish to fulfill their destiny, if you will. And it's not just in sports that we realize this. Parents of teenagers trying to get them to graduate high school, right? Like you're at that last couple weeks of your senior year, and it'll be like looking at the SOLs and just going, nah, I'm just not going to graduate. Like, no, finish the school year. Like we realize this. In our experience, and I pick on high schoolers, but I'm in a little bit of the same boat as I'm in classes for ordination. Like I often will find as I'm looking at homework for the week or how much writing and reading, I'm going, man, I could have a lot of fun working at Ace Hardware. I'm just saying, right? Like there's these moments where what's ahead just doesn't seem worth it. And often like my wife will kindly and encouragingly go now honey just lean in it's just a couple more assignments we can continue this we can do this and meanwhile I'm over here like checking my grades like if I have enough good grades if I just stop these assignments can I still pass like that's what I'm doing right like we recognize this that there's just something tragic there's something heartbreaking about stopping at key moments it just strikes us as a big mistake As we rejoin the children of Israel again in the wilderness, we see them on the brink of the promised land, on the threshold, on the last lap to the finish line. And at that pivotal moment, they decide to turn around. Because what they see ahead of them, they perceive as just too hard. And so they throw in the towel. Have you ever been there on your journey? close to seeing the fulfillment of maybe what God has called and led you to, but yet there seems to be so many difficulties, so there's some part of you that just throws in the towel. Have you been there? Have you been there? Maybe maybe you've already given up. Maybe you've already given up. What would it look like today in in that place of your life and and that leg of your journey, that leg of your race? What would it look like in your life today to affirm, to reaffirm your trust in the Lord to see it through? What would that look like for your story today? Even if you don't see how, even if you don't see the way that God's going to do it, what would it look like to trust him completely? I welcome you back to our summer teaching series, The Wanderers. We've been taking several weeks here to unpack the story of God's children, of his covenant people who he brought up out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt, and as them on a destination toward their inheritance in 
the promised land. And this journey we've seen has been custom made. It's been tailor fitted and been designed to equip the people of God to become children instead of slaves. He had a plan and a purpose through all of these events to train his people, to train his children. Each difficulty they encountered, each need that they encountered was an opportunity for them to trust, to lean in and look to the Lord. But as we have seen, it's also been an opportunity for them to lean out, to lean back and begin to grumble and complain about the journey that they find themselves on. And throughout this story, God has had a primary desire, a primary focus, a motive, if you will, and that was to be with his people. And as we unpacked chapter 19 of Exodus last week and this idea of covenant relationship where on Mount Sinai, God extends this lavish invitation to his people to enter into committed relationship. It was an invitation where God invited his people to be wholly committed to him. And then the blessing of his presence would flow through his people. And and they would actually become his most treasured possession. And we unpacked a little bit. Like that's a crazy idea. Because God has created and he owns every sunset and every high snow-capped mountain peak. But he says, no, no, no. You in covenant relationship with me will be my most treasured possession. That's just crazy grace in a scale we struggle to comprehend sometimes. But that's the beauty of covenant. That's what the Lord had in mind. But even as we unpacked that last week, there still remained an element of the story unfulfilled. And that is this inheritance, this occupying of the promised land. You see, because from the moment they left Egypt, God had been leading them and been telling them, I have a land for you. The finish line is set. And as we pick up our text today, we're going to be in the book of Numbers at chapter 13. And we're going to pick up our story today about a year after the events of Mount Sinai that we unpacked last week. And as we dive into Numbers 13, uh, they're on the border of God's promised land. They're at the finish line. It is in sight. And what they're doing is Moses calls a leader from each of the tribe of uh, the children of Israel. And, and so these guys weren't just napping in a hammock. Like, no, the, these were leaders among the people. And so he selects these men and sends them on a mission to go scope out the land, to scope out God's promise. And as we pick up in Numbers 13, they're coming back. They've been on a 40-day tour, a 40-day reconnaissance mission. And they come back with the report that we're going to read here in Numbers 13. Uh, We're going to pick up at verse 25. And so they've just been into this land with milk and honey. And at this pivotal moment, will they be found trusting? Will you? Will you be found trusting? Numbers 13, verse 25 says, At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite assembly at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. It says, there they reported to them into the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. Literally, they brought the proof and the pudding back with them of God's faithfulness. Verse 27 says, they gave Moses this account. It says, we went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. And so they're affirming that, yes, it's just as God said it would be. It does flow with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. Here's the proof. Verse 28, it begins with but. And that might be one of the most profound three-letter words in Scripture in this moment. That's a 
sad interjection in the story. Because they say, but, all of that's true, but the people who live there are powerful. The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites uh, live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Verse 30, it says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. At this early point in our teaching text today in this story, we get this sense that the old nemesis of the children of Israel is back after them again. And that old nemesis is doubt in the face of difficulty. We see that all except Caleb, and we would learn later that Joshua, all except those two men, they're leaning out. What they have seen is so messing with them, they're so riddled with doubt and fear that they're leaning out on God's promise after all they've seen him do. And on the doorstep of this story, on the doorstep of their inheritance, it's just right over there, we witness a truth that transcends thousands of years of human experience, and that's this, that what we see can poison what we believe. What we see and what we discern in the world, what we see and discern ahead of us can poison what we believe. As we unpack the story of God's children today, on the threshold of this great moment, on the threshold of their victory and their inheritance, we're going to see the faith of an entire generation poisoned by unbelief. Because what they saw poisoned what they believed. What they saw poisoned what they believed. What do you see today? What do you see today? Let's pray together. Father, we invite you to come, Lord. Come in the power and the ministry of your spirit, Lord. Uh, apply your truth and your word to our hearts today. Lord, we want to be open and humble to you, Lord, to learn from this passage, this truth, this story that you have preserved for us. God, we give you permission to work freely in our lives, Lord. We want to be your holy, committed, covenant people. We love you today, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the, the ten men who, who came back to the camp, they returned with what you might call a pessimistic outlook on what was ahead. And I'm, for one, am grateful today that just simply being a pessimist was not the biggest problem in the text or I would be in real trouble. Okay, because I'm one of those people in just an honest moment of reflection that I generally come back with a report about everything that's wrong and challenging of something up ahead. I know I'm not alone. Some of y'all in here with me. But the, somewhere my wife's saying, amen. Uh, but it, it's not necessarily that pessimism was the problem. But you see, pessimism can creep over and creep into doubt and pushing back against what the Lord's trying to do. You know, pessimism shows up in our lives, in my life, in many different ways. Uh, I think back when we were shopping for a home, when we had our realtor, I drove that poor man insane. Nuts. Because, you know, his job is to show all the good stuff, you know, all the good comps and all how the, nice the views and the land and everything is. His job is to show how awesome everything is. Well, my job as the pessimist is to pull out everything wrong with it. 
So, you know, I'm looking at the refrigerator and what does that smell? Did you see that over there? What is the crack in that ceiling for? You know, that's the pessimism coming out. And there's an element of that where we're just being honest about what we see. But if we're not careful, that pessimism can turn into doubt and then it begins to get in the way of following God's plan and his purpose for our lives and for the spies in Israel, this pessimism, this assessment of what they saw went far beyond just information. It went into doubt of the Lord's ability to fulfill his promise to his people. And so this poison of unbelief and doubt comes more into focus because they, they really begin to expand their report. I mean, they would have made great fishermen, right? Because they started out with a fish this big and a report this big, but by the time it was done, you know, we caught one this big. Like, that's the kind of story that they're telling. They're exaggerating what they saw. And we're going to get a picture of that here as we pick up in verse 31. It says, but the men, so these are the ten who doubted. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And so we looked the same to them. You see, the faith of these ten men was so poisoned by what they witnessed in the land that they came back and they began to even exaggerate the report. They began to try to drag others into their doubt. That poison begins to spread in the rumors among the people. And, and this, they're really trying to convey fear and doubt. Uh, the land devours those living in it. They're suggesting that God's promise, the land of milk and honey, is really not fit to live in. It's a hostile place. All the people are of great stature. Literally, they, everybody in their mind was bigger and better than they were. And this idea of the Nephilim, that goes back into the story of Genesis pre-flood. And, and they're really uh, like a half-human, half-divine being. And so they're trying to inflict fear upon the people about the promised land. And they're, they're so convinced of this impossibility that they want to try to turn back. They totally forsake God's promise to lead them. And they drag the whole community with them. In Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1, we get to see that effect, the poison of unbelief. It says, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Like, haven't we heard that before in this story somewhere? It's not the first time. But I said, wouldn't it be better for us to go back? And they said to one another, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt into slavery. And on the threshold of the promise, on the threshold of the fulfillment of their inheritance, what they saw, the difficulty they saw ahead of them, overran and overturned their faith in the Lord's ability to provide a way. And so the people returned to their classic response of grumbling and complaining against Moses and ultimately against the Lord. 
in those moments against this poison of unbelief, they begin to think it'd be better that they just die in the wilderness or even go back to the land. They would rather die where they were than take a step of faith and try God in the inheritance. They said, we should choose a leader and go back. And this is probably the pinnacle of their unbelief in these moments because they're really saying, look, 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 we don't really want God's plan anymore. We really don't even like his leaders anymore. We don't trust them. And I really don't want any part of God's land anyway. Let me just go back to Egypt. The pinnacle of unbelief, what they saw, what they witnessed, what they perceived ahead of them had so poisoned their belief that they saw no way that God could do it. As the story continues to unfold, uh, Moses and Aaron, the, by the way, the leaders that they just wanted to abandon, that they try to plead with them. They cry out to them, don't do this. Don't turn around at this moment. It's right there. Let's take a step of faith. But they would have no part of it. And the Lord's ear had not been deaf to the complaining of his people. And so finally the Lord appears in a tent of meeting to Moses and, and speaks judgment upon his people. Because, see, we have forfeited that covenant we just made. We're no longer wholly committed to him. We're no longer receiving that blessing because we've bent out what we've seen has poisoned our belief. And so the Lord declares judgment on his people. And the Lord tells Moses that he will strike them down in response to their rebellion. But Moses... The humble man begs and pleads of the Lord. He begins to intercede on their behalf that the Lord would not take them, but that he would spare them. And finally, the Lord relents. And in response to Moses' pleading, the Lord agrees that he would spare the children of Israel, that he uh, would show his steadfast love, but that it would not be without consequence. It would not be without consequence. Let's pick back up in our story in Numbers 14, verse 10. It says, the Lord replied, this is in response to Moses, the response of Moses' pleading. It says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one, not one those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. You see, this idea of promised on oath to their ancestors, this story goes back to Abraham, to a promise made to generations ago, and unbelief forfeited it. One of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who treated me with contempt will ever see it. Verse 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Friends, this is the moment. This was the rebellion, the reason that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The poison of unbelief cost an entire generation of people the joy of experiencing the promise and inheritance of the Lord. An entire generation of people wouldn't see it. Scholars have tried to figure out just you know, how many people was that? How many people are represented in a generation? And it's about 1.2 million 
1.2 million people would perish in the desert wandering over the next 40 years. These were 1.2 million fathers and mothers and, and grandmothers and grandfathers and brothers and sisters. These were people who had dreams and stories and lives, but it was forfeited by the poison of unbelief. I was trying to wrap my mind around, you know, how, how many people is 1.2 million? Uh, if you look up the census data, um, Northern Virginia excluded, D.C. excluded, Virginia Beach is the largest city in the state. And their population is 450,000. 1.2 million perished in the desert. What happened? What happened? Where did this whole thing go wrong? verse 24 I believe verse 24 gives us a glimpse into this idea it says but because my servant Caleb because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit the band begins to make their way forward, friends. If, if the story we've been unpacking and the reality we've been unpacking is that if what we see can poison what we believe, then the opposite is also true. That what we believe can change what we see. That's Caleb. That's what it means to have a different spirit to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. That what we believe changes everything we see. heart that trusts the Lord completely, a different spirit than all the rest, sees all of those obstacles as opportunities for God's grace to show up big. What we believe can change what we see. You see, when Caleb and Joshua, when they went into the land, they saw all the same things. They saw the tall dudes. They saw the fortified cities. They saw the pieces of harsh ground. But yet through the eyes of faith, through the commitment of their love for the Lord, they saw an opportunity instead of an obstacle. Their trust in the Lord said, I don't know how the Lord's going to do this, but he's going to. Let's go. What they believed changed what they saw. What would that change in your story today? That what you believe and what you know to be true of the Lord, what would that change about your story? About what you see, the impossibilities and difficulties that are ahead, what would that change for you? To trust the Lord, even though you don't see it, it might not make sense. To allow what you believe to change what you see. You see, I think... I think Joshua and Caleb, they hadn't missed the opportunities of difficulty in the whole journey leading up to this moment. You see, because they would have too been there on the side of the seashore hearing the Egyptian chariots coming down and not seeing the way forward. They were there. 
And when they had crossed the sea and when they had no water for days, they were thirsty. They were parched like everybody else. And when they had traveled and they had had no food and they're, they're beginning to hunger with pain, they felt that too. But in those moments, they trusted that the Lord was doing something, was equipping them in a way that they might not understand, but they chose to believe anyway. And they cultivated over a lifetime faithfulness and wholehearted commitment to the Lord. So when the moment came for them to take that step into the promised land, they were ready. They were ready. And you know, I... Here not too long ago, we spent several months studying the book of James. And, and you'll remember uh, this crazy line that he opens up his letter with. It's crazy. Remember, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? Joy? When you face trials? You see, James understood what Caleb and Joshua understood. That those trials were opportunities to strengthen your faith, to be bold in perseverance, knowing that the Lord will make a way. What they believed changed what they saw. And James goes on, after he says that crazy line about count it joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance Finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the difference it made in Joshua and Caleb's life. What they believed changed what they saw. You know, the, those boys would need that faithfulness. Because what they... God in return, if you will, was to wait 40 years to see the promise fulfilled. You see, Caleb and Joshua, they had to wait 40 years for the word of the Lord to come through. 40 years of watching their family, their elders in the congregation, in the community to perish in the wilderness. 40 years of wandering and testing. But when it came time, when it came time for them to step into the promised land, they didn't give up on year 39, month 11. No, they stayed faithful and true to the end. And, and when it came time when the Lord told them to go into the promised land, they sent two spies because they learned a lesson 40 years ago. They sent two spies to look out the land. And there is that whole story of Rahab and Jericho and the walls. And those spies come back and here's the report they give. It says, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. What you believe will change what you see. What would that look like in your story today? How you doing? How you doing? What we see can poison what we believe or what we believe can change what we see I think that's why you're here today it's the 4th of July you could have already been barbecuing and setting off bottle rockets but you chose to be here 
to consider this truth. That what we see, that the difficulties and trials and the pain that we endure is either going to serve to poison our belief or or what we believe is going to change what we see. And I don't know the ins and outs of your story today, but I just got a hunch that there's some giants in ahead of you. That there might be some fortified cities. There's some challenges ahead. To trust Him in that place. To just believe that, Lord, I don't see necessarily the whole picture, what you're up to. I don't understand what you're trying to test me and show me and strengthen me in this season. But, Lord, I'm going to just believe. I'm going to put belief over what I see. And even if it takes 40 years, I'm going to trust. What would that do in your story today? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? What we see can poison our belief, or what we believe can change what we see. Let's pray together. Lord, oh, thank you today for your presence, Lord, for the truth of your word. Lord, uh, we can't do this on our own. Lord, I, I don't know of a way to count in all joy in the middle of difficulty. I, I, don't, I don't have it. Other than to invite you. To put belief first. And allow you to change what I see. And so, Lord, what, may that be true today. In my life, in the life of your people. And God, I know there's pain in this room today. I know there's giants in this room today. There's fortified cities and challenges, Lord. But Lord, you're here. And so Lord, today we're drawing a line in the sand to just say, I will choose to believe. And so Lord, we're trusting you to change what we see. To change those obstacles into opportunities. Impossibilities to possibilities. So Lord, will you move today in the hearts of your people. May everything we see, every challenge we face, be through the eyes of faith and trust in you, Lord. We love you today. Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.